Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Fade. Wednesday, October 28th, 2015. We'll be doing our light episode today, although we're not in Genesis. I'll be uh, rambling about an eschatological focus and hope and its importance to the Christian life. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually take the time to open our Bibles to compare and see what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets and prophetesses, self-proclaimed apostles and apostolettes, to see if what they're saying actually squares with what God's Word says. When we put it back in context, use sound biblical hermeneutics and exegesis and, you know, a Christ-centered approach to Scripture, properly distinguishing between law and gospel to see if they're actually teaching the historic, biblical, orthodox, Christian faith and doctrine, or if they're making stuff up, innovating, and basically teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to be teaching. It's kind of what we do here at Fighting for the Faith. Part of this requires us to not only look at what's bad in teaching, but, you know, compare it to, uh, uh, you know, a good approach to Scripture. You know, what does sound biblical teaching sound like? Now, one of the things that's very popular nowadays is this idea that uh, we got to get away from being so heavenly minded. You've heard the the uh, statement, uh, you know, so heavenly minded, he's of no earthly good. Yeah, we're going to test that today. We're going to test that concept today, and uh, we're going to take a look scripturally to see how a, a an eschatological a, eternal focus on what is coming how that really plays into how we live as Christians by faith. And uh, you're going to be surprised here that all those people out there saying, yeah, you know, you know, yeah, it's true. Jesus died for your sins and we have eternal life, but there's got to be some benefit in the here and the now. And so we got to focus on the here and the now. Yeah, that's actually not taught in scripture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll explain that as we go. But uh, without any further ado, here is the next installment of Rosebro's ramblings as I ramble my way, well, regarding eschatological hope. Here we go. Holy and most merciful God, you have taught us the way of your commandments. We implore you to pour out your grace into our hearts, cause it to bear fruit in us that being ever mindful of your mercies and your laws, we may always be directed to your will and daily increase in love towards you and one another. Enable us to resist all evil and to live a godly life. Help us to follow the example of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to walk in his steps until we shall possess the kingdom that has been prepared for us in heaven through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, we're going to take a look at the epistle of First Peter. I'm going to challenge you guys a little bit. I'll put some of you on the spot. One of the things that recurring themes that I bring up as we've been working through Scripture is the proper distinction of law and gospel. And when we talk about the proper distinction of law and gospel, one of the things that we need to be doing is paying attention to whether something has an imperative or if it's giving an indicative. Okay, an imperative, we all know what an imperative is. Do this. That's imperative. 
do this. That's law. Indicative is like a statement of fact. So the idea here is, is that the gospel itself, you can say, is indicative. It's the proclamation that Christ has died for your sins. That's an indicative. And it's important that when we do Christian doctrine, biblical doctrine, that our imperatives always come off of our indicatives. We want indicatives to kind of be in the driver's seat and imperatives to come off of that. You can see an example of this in the book of Romans, where the book of Romans is ground zero for the gospel. And then in the back end of the epistle, we have a lot of imperatives. The imperatives exist in light of the indicatives. So here's the idea. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. If you were to pay attention, if you were to listen to radio preachers or people on television, this is a passage that a lot of people quote frequently. And you would be shocked how many people start this passage at this point. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, and they leave out this part by the mercies of God. And when you preach... It's a, this is an important thing. Remember, there's three uses of the law. The civil use is the government's use, that government curbs evil by punishing evildoers and lawbreakers. Second use is the primary use. It convicts us of our sin. Third use of the law shows us what a good work is. And third use of the law is only for a Christian. And third use of the law should never be preached apart from the indicatives of what Christ has done for us. As Christians, sanctification is always in light of God's mercies, always in light of the fact that Christ has bled and died for us. If you preach imperatives without the indicatives, Christianity starts to steer towards legalism very quickly. Does that make sense? Okay. So back to 1 Peter. We're going to pay attention, and you're going to notice that Peter, he weaves together imperatives and indicatives. He weaves them together. And we'll note how his imperatives are driven by the indicatives. So we read in 1 Peter, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, so he's giving his office, to those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. So you'll notice there's a lot going on here. Just in these opening words, highly polished too, by the way, he's talking about election. He's talking about God's foreknowledge and choosing to justify us by grace through faith. And then the sanctifying work of the Spirit, which then flows into obedience to Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Imperative or indicative? It's indicative. So you'll notice, the indicative, this is what Christ has done for us, and more, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So these next verses, verses 4 and 5, imperative or indicative? Indicative. In this you rejoice... Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with Him with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Notice, lots of indicatives here. There's no, therefore do this yet. It's all a reminder. Christians, we need to hear the gospel. We need to hear it over and over and over and over again. And the reason we need to hear it over and over and over again is because daily you still sin. 
So do I. So we must always be reminded, always have our faith strengthened in the assurance that our right standing before God is and has been established by Christ. And then from that right relationship that God has given us, because He foreknew us, He predestined us, He justified us, the Spirit is sanctifying us, then from there we are now obedient to Christ. Not in order to be saved, but because we are saved. Important distinctions. And real quick, over and again in our society, there's a lot of people who are tinkering with Christianity. And the tinkering goes like this. Well, of course we believe that Jesus died so that we can go to heaven, but isn't Christianity more than just that? And of course you sit there and go, well, yeah, of course it is. But when somebody starts talking like that, what they're trying to do is make space in your mind for something new. Something different. Christianity is about, well, it's not about just going to heaven when you die. It's about having divine prosperity and divine health right now. Are you being sick all the time? Is that God's best for your life? Is it God's best for your life to constantly have struggle to pay your bills? Well, of course that's not God's best for your life. So Christianity has to be more than just Jesus making it so we can go to heaven. It has to be about being healthy and prosperous. Yeah. Well, if you make the space in your mind right between reason and sense, and you just right in there, you know, don't think about anything else. Yeah. And when what I just gave you there, that's not a made-up argument. When you listen to the prosperity preachers and the divine health preachers on television, this includes Joyce Meyer and Kenneth Copeland and these people, this is how they talk. Peter here, notice what he says that we are obtaining the outcome of our faith, which is what? The salvation of our souls. The salvation of our souls is the outcome of our faith. So when somebody comes along and says, they set this template up, this is a heretical template, and they say, well, yeah, we believe that Jesus died for our sins. Duh. Yeah, we know that you know we're going to heaven when we die. But there's got to be some cash payout right now in this life. Like, I've got to find my purpose. I've got to have divine health and wealth and all this kind of stuff. What they're doing is they're taking your eyes off the end and putting it on the now. They're taking your eyes off of eternity and putting it onto the temporal. Over and again, Scripture reminds us that we are sojourners, that we are here for a brief amount of time. Scripture describes us as a mist. As grass, withering. We're just the current crop of humans. I don't feel like I've been here for 47 years. Internally, I don't feel 47. Externally, something's off. I look a lot worse than I feel. <laughs> I also forget about those that his wives did him as martyrs. They didn't quite follow the plan. Exactly. Jesus didn't follow the plan either. Did Jesus end up living in a mansion, in a palace? No. Jesus said, foxes have holes. I don't even have a home. Well, the way he would talk, right? Now, we continue. So concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but they were serving you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to see. This is kind of a missing component of the doctrine of inspiration of Scripture. It's fascinating to me that when you read a lot of systematic theologies, there are good theologies that talk about the inspiration of Scripture. They forget to talk about this, the vocation of Scripture author. 
Think of it this way. God called each and every one of the authors of Scripture, called them and revealed to them and worked through the Holy Spirit through them to write these things down. Who were they serving when they wrote these things down? Us. They were serving us. And so one of the missing pieces of the doctrine of inspiration is that all of the biblical authors were put into vocation of Scripture writer, and they were serving their neighbors. And it makes it very clear, they were not serving themselves, but they were serving us. It's a neat way to think about it. So when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you need to see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, James, Jude, Isaiah, Moses, as men who are your servants, who are serving you to reveal to you and speak to you the truth about God and what Christ is doing and about His sufferings and His glories. These men are serving us and serve the church still to this day. Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to note that Peter here is writing to Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. And this is kind of the important thing about this. Oftentimes, people today talk about, how can I share the gospel in a way that won't upset people? How can I share the gospel in a way that will be, quote, effective, is another way of putting it. But the person seeking to do that is trying to find a way to share the gospel without suffering. And nowhere in Scripture are we told not to expect suffering as Christians. Instead, Jesus makes it very clear we are to expect persecution and suffering for speaking the truth. So the idea then here is is that how in the New Testament, and this is a recurring theme in the New Testament, how does the New Testament prepare those who are preaching the gospel to preach it boldly and confidently even in the face of stiff persecution and opposition? Answer, by setting their hope on the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Christ. If you keep your eyes on what's coming, eternity, you are capable of speaking boldly and enduring suffering and disgrace for the name of Christ because your eyes are not in the here and the now. They see what's coming down the road. Keep in mind, for everybody else, death is a blind curve. For us, it's not. I'll tell you a story. Years ago, I used to work in San Juan Capistrano, California. But I lived in a city called Corona, which is a long way from San Juan Capistrano. I lived in a neighborhood called Horse Thief Canyon, and that is in the southernmost part of Corona, right before you get to the city of Lake Elsinore. Corona's inland, San Juan Capistrano's on the coast, Between them is a 50-mile-long road called the Ortega Highway. And the Ortega Highway is a single-lane highway, at least it was when I drove it, a single-lane highway that winds its way through the Saddleback Mountain Range. I took the job and started driving on this road, and no sooner did I start driving on this road that my mother informed me, oh, I heard that that's like the most dangerous road in America. It's like, really? Yeah, a lot of people die on that every year. Thanks. Okay. And no sooner did she warn me about this that I found out that's absolutely true. Because what would happen is, is that in California, especially in the Ortega Highway, there were people that the way I described them is they're dying to get to work. Because here's what happens. It's like somebody's in a hurry. They're running late. They're going to be 10 minutes late to work. Their solution on the Ortega Highway to make up lost ground is to go out into the other lane. It's a single-lane highway. And pass cars even while going around blind curves. 
It's really, really dumb. So I learned that the way you survive on the Ortega Highway is you get into a group of vehicles and you are never the lead car. Because the lead car is the one that's going to get taken out. And so this is how I survived on this thing for five years. But like my first, one of my first experiences of finding out just how dangerous this road was, I was in a group of cars and there was a lady in a Chevy S10 pickup truck and that thing was like that, remember like the 90s teal green smurfy kind of color? She was dying to get to work. And so we were on a straightaway as we're heading towards kind of like the, one of the last blind curves going into San Juan. And she gets out into the lane, the other lane, and she guns it. She passes the person behind me. She passes me. She passes the person in front of me. She passes the person in front of him. She passes the person in front of him. And she still has no way to get in. And so she gets to the blind curve, and she goes around, and there's a cement truck there to meet her. And that was the most sickening thing I've ever seen in my life. She did not survive the experience. I mean, the only way I can describe it is is that her car was destroyed by the cement truck. Now, the guy in the cement truck, I mean, he stood on his brakes, lost control, came into our lane, and then down into a ditch. And so, it's oh, man. So, we go... We don't even, I didn't want to look at her because we all know she was gone. So we all run down to, to help this guy out. And he comes climbing up the, the, the embankment, and he's got a beard of blood. You know, his mouth is bleeding, his nose is bleeding, and just everything was just, it was awful. But all of this is a metaphor, and the idea is this, is that death for everybody except for Christians is a blind curve. It really is. You know, you ask somebody who is not a believer, you know, as they're getting ready to go into eternity, are you ready to go into eternity? Well, I guess I was a good person. They don't know what they're to expect or what's going to happen. They just, it's a leap into the dark. But for us, we know exactly what's around this blind curve because it's not a blind curve for us. And why? Because God in His wisdom and His mercy has given us a picture of what it is that's coming. So here's the idea, is that we as Christians, and what the Scripture teaches us, is that we are truth-tellers proclaiming the mercies of God always with an eye on the eternal. You have to have an anchor point in what's coming in order to be able to bear up under the suffering that you're going to experience for proclaiming Christ on this side of things. Over again, I use the metaphor that Christ's death on the cross, it's like D-Day in World War II. World War II was over on D-Day. The victory was absolutely certain. There was no way the Nazis were going to hold the ground and win. Everybody knew at that point, even Rommel said, that Germany lost the war on D-Day. But there were still battles that had to be fought. The Battle of the Bulge, you know, and all these other battles that had to be fought as they finally made their way to Berlin. So Christ's victory on the cross is D-Day, and it assures 100% Christ has won the war. But we still have battles to fight. And just like the Allied troops, they were soldiers of the future regime that would take over Europe. They weren't ruling and reigning at the time when they were fighting for France, fighting to take back Belgium, fighting to take back these countries. But once they secured the victory, they had control over that thing. So they were representatives of a future government coming to take over Europe. Same way with us. We, as Christians, are all soldiers of Christ's future and present kingdom. It's kind of paradoxical in that sense that it's future and present because He truly, His kingdom rules in our hearts. There is a time coming when His kingdom will no longer be an article of faith, something you believe and trust because He said it. His kingdom will be something that you see with your own eyes. And you are a soldier and a citizen of a kingdom that is here now and coming. Here now in our hearts, here now when we meet together, and present visibly in the end. 
This is our hope. Christians who don't keep an eye on the eternal have a tendency to live in the temporal and let the temporal circumstances dictate things to them that it ought not dictate to us. Of course we're struggling. Keep your eye on the end. And by way of kind of an example here then, let's take a look at the back of the book. As we talk about eschatological truth-telling here, we'll look at the back of the book. Revelation chapter 21. And then I'm going to cross-reference this section of Peter with the Hebrews 11. So if you want to keep a finger on Hebrews 11, you can too. So let's take a look at what our hope is. What is it that's coming? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Beautiful way to describe it, by the way. I always cry at weddings, especially when I see the bride. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So, real quick, new heavens, new earth coming. God's going to make His dwelling place among us. No longer will belief in God be based upon faith. Belief in God will be based on sight. And you're going to see all of this with your own eyes. This is all going down on the day when that graveyard is emptied. And I'm not talking about some bulldozer coming through here. I'm talking when Christ comes from that direction and everyone springs out of their grave to meet Him because He calls us out. This earth passes away. This heavens and earth. That includes all the stars and the galaxies and the quasars and the black holes. All of that. Gone. It will be the big unbang. All right, we're going to pause right there and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. The balance of today's lesson as I ramble my way through, well, a look at what the Bible says regarding the importance of an eschatological hope. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
Hey guys, it's Rex here, again. Now I know that all of you have been hearing about the latest fad in the church called an Emmaus walk. Well, you know what I think? It's uber lame. I mean, what's so special about going on a little walk, hoping and praying that Jesus is going to show up and have an enlightenment picnic with you? It's not nearly hardcore enough. I'm starting a new fad. It's called the Road to Damascus Walk. You don't go out trying to find Jesus. He finds you. And after he's found you, he knocks you off your horse, throws you in the mud, blinds you, and then sends you on a harrowing journey to a town that you've never been to in order to find a prophet of God. It's way more awesome than an ant-infested picnic next to a scum-filled pond. Don't believe me? Well, then give it a shot. I dare you. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, Our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that having an eschatological hope, an eternal-mindedness is a good thing rather than a bad thing, contrary to what many seeker-driven guys are talking about. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95. That's it. Every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute. You could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable too, Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's Roseboro's ramblings as I ramble my way through the kind of the topic of, well, an eschatological hope and the importance it plays in our Christian life. Here we go. Mark. When there's a current heaven, then the new heaven. You hardly ever hear television and radio cast talk about the new heaven and the new earth. It's like heaven, the current heaven is the ending point. It's not. I know. Heaven right now, where disembodied human beings go, that's a temporal state. Our 
eternity is not disembodied spirits floating around the heavenly kingdom. Our eternity is the resurrection of our physical bodies and the death and resurrection of the universe itself. The universe is going to pass away and God's going to remake it brand new. And this coming one will be nothing like this present one. This whole creation has been subject to futility as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve. This age is coming to an end. What's coming is a future kingdom. And you, with your physical eyes, are going to see Jesus face to face. And you're going to see this city. You're going to dwell in this city. Not for 50 years, not for a hundred, not for a thousand, but world without end. Each day better than the one before. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, Come on, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Twelve tribes, twelve apostles. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. He measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and its width and height are equal. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. And the wall was built of jasper, while the city was of pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophas, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. Yeah, that's right. There goes the gold standard. Gold becomes asphalt. The stuff that the horses in the new kingdom will poop on. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. And its light, by its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So here's the idea that Peter's giving us. Set your hope on this. The end. The outcome of your faith. The salvation of your souls. Bear up under whatever persecution you face for preaching and proclaiming the truth. Calling sinners to repentance and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Oh, you do this, you'll suffer. Keep your eyes on the end. This is what's coming. And you'll see now, again, this kind of eschatological view that the Christians have that Peter was telling us about. This is right there in Hebrews 11. Watch how Hebrews 11 unfolds, the great Hall of Faith passage. And let's see if these guys were telling the truth, willing to suffer because they kept their eyes on what's coming. 
Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. In other words, evolution ain't true. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of the promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward. Here's the first reference to it. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, even Abraham had an understanding of the city of God that's coming. Even though the book of Revelation had not yet been written, it says he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So that Revelation city that we just read about, this plays into walking out your Christian life by faith. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand on the seashore. All of these died in faith, not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Second reference. It's there the whole time. Notice how this eschatological hope in the coming city of God, of the end, which is the new beginning of the new age, this is central to the Christian faith, central to the faith of the patriarchs. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the two sons of Joseph bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Choosing rather to be mistreated. How? By faith. But faith also, here we are learning that Moses, even Moses, has his eye on the end. The coming city. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Notice what that says about Moses. 
The reproach of who? Christ. For he was looking to the reward. This is what it says about Moses. Think of all that poor man suffered, right? Okay? He was willing to not be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and suffer the reproach of Christ because he's looking forward to the reward. You see how eschatology then informs your ability to bear up under suffering? That's the point that the writer of Hebrews is making here. The eschaton gives you the hope to handle it. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, they were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the prostitute, who we talked about last week, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith they conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured. Now here's the turning point. So here we have this list of all of the great people of faith of the Old Testament. And they put foreign armies to flight. They had all of these exploits that they did by faith. But watch what's also in the list. In the same list as the exploits of putting foreign armies to flight, stopping the mouths of lions, we read, some were tortured. Being tortured for the name of Christ is as much an exploit of faith as putting a foreign army to flight by faith. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went around in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All of these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Have you ever stopped to think about this? That on the day when Jesus returns, and the Kongsvinger graveyard is emptied by the command of Christ, on that same day, Abraham Isaac, Jacob, David, Samuel, Moses, Samson, Barak, all of these men will be resurrected too. None of them go first. They are not going to be perfected apart from you and me. We will be perfected with them on the exact same day. In the new age, we will have the same age as David, as Paul, as Peter. Interesting, isn't it? And this is the hope that then gives us something to hang on to so that when we are suffering for our faith, we know that it's worth it because death is not a blind curve for us. Christ has made sure to send those from the future back to where we are to tell us of what's coming around the corner. So that by faith, because we have faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, and we have faith that the words of Christ are true, and that God's Word is true, we now have faith in the future and present kingdom. That's the weird part about it. 
By faith, soon to be by sight. And so now, when you lose friends, when family members turn against you for preaching the truth or believing the truth, it gives you something that you can hang on to and bear up under it because you know what's coming. All of this has meaning. None of this is for naught. And that's the way Christians are instructed to think about these things and understand that the sufferings that you are experiencing, these fall into the list of the exploits of the greatest men of faith of the Old Testament. Sufferings, mockings, persecutions. They're up there with stopping the mouths of lions. And when you see it for what it is, then you can rejoice in your sufferings and say along with the apostles, we have been found worthy to suffer shame for the name. It's a weird sentence, but that's the truth of it. Because it is a grace and it is an honor given from Christ to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. Yeah. Boy, she's brave, isn't she? Then thinking about her as your child. Yeah. She won't bow, will she? She won't bow. And now they're trying to hold their Of course they are. How dare you tell us that our law is immoral? We'll show you. She's showing more than they're even. Mean, there's just a little bit of what they're showing. She is showing the world, not just the United States, the world. She is setting such an example that, wow. Yeah. She's not even really breaking the law, though, because she's not signing either homosexual or heterosexual marriage certificates. She's not doing either. She's not doing both. Well, she's breaking the law, and the court tells you to do it. Do it or else. And she said, I'll take or else. So you see how that works? Amazing how something can step up after she goes and steps up, puts her neck on the line, how some people are starting to come on and back her up. And yeah. It's a little bit more, you, you hear more of it on the news now. Yeah. You know, where people are praising her for doing her. Doesn't there something like 30 judges down in the Bible Belt now that have said that they are not going to do it too? None of them will go to jail. She's still there. Yeah. This is an example of civil disobedience when the second table of the law conflicts with the first. And that's the right way to put it. There's two tables of God's law. First table is our relationship with God. Second table is our relationship with others. The second table begins with honor your father and mother. And it's from that commandment comes government. It's really important for us to get that. Government is a result of the fathers of families getting together and collectively distributing the load of protecting a community. That's the idea. That's what government really is. It has its foundation in father and mother. So when the government goes against God, then you have a conflict. The conflict is, can I obey government, second table, Or do I obey God first? When the government goes rogue, first table trumps second table. This is a perfect example of what this woman is doing. Because she won't go against her conscience. No, she won't because the first table has captivated her and she doesn't care what the rogue government says. Love it. I really say her conscience. She says, by God's authority. Exactly. But the question gets fed, is it wrong for people that claim to be Christians to even sign those certificates? Is this a is this an audio question, or is it actually... I can't sign them. I won't sign either a heterosexual or a homosexual marriage certificate. I won't participate. I can fill out the paperwork right now and I can sign those certificates. I won't sign either of them now. The reason why is because the marriage certificate is not what makes a marriage. That's a government paperwork document that has to do with rights when you visit somebody in the hospital who's a family member and, and has to do with property distribution after you die. That's not what makes a marriage. 
What makes a marriage is when two people stand before God and by virtue of my office, I pronounce them man and wife. God is doing that. That's a marriage. But my question is, another civil servant who is elected, an elected official, uh-huh. who's a Christian, right? Is it is it an adiaphor question, or is it this is sin if you sign these two people into? At this point, each Christian is going to have to examine and ask the question: If I do this second table, am I now in conflict with God? First table, and if the answer is yes then they can't. It's not adiaphora. I don't see how it can be. Which one? Which God? Yeah. Yeah. I'm beginning to think the God that the U.S. works of is named Molech. Now let's go back to First Peter and let's pay attention now here. Peter is instructing these believers, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And that's you. You have not seen Jesus, and yet you love Him. Though you do not see Him, you believe in Him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but they were serving you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven things into which the angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Christ. As obedient children, do not conform to the passions of your former ignorance. Now this is an imperative. You see the transition? Indicative, 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 therefore imperative. And notice, it's not just faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. It's faith also in Christ for the hope of glory. The hope of His return. Of the revelation of His grace which we will see with our own eyes. And as a result of that, in light of His return, don't conform to the passions of your former ignorance. Sanctification. But as He who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So notice, faith, hope. The two work together and help you bear up under any kind of persecution that you might face because you can see the end. And you don't have to guess. You know what's coming. Real quick, and I'll kind of end on this thought. Great word here, ransomed. The Greek word there is latruo. And let me open this up so that you can see what this means. Latruo means to free by paying a ransom or to redeem. It's talking about prisoners and slaves. So a latruo, a latruo, is the ransom price of securing a slave or a prisoner's freedom. You were ransomed. You were ransomed by the, not by silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot.
That's good stuff. So you see how the imperatives and the indicatives work together. Indicatives drive. Imperatives are the therefores that follow. It's faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and hope for the future coming glory that you'll see on the last day. Faith and hope then work together and strengthen your resolve so that you preach and proclaim the truth even in the face of stiff opposition, always remembering that you were ransomed, not with the gold and silver, but with Christ's own blood. Good thought for the day. We'll leave it at that. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>